emphasis is punishment. Unfortunately, we're out of time for today, but this is absolutely to be continued. We've been on the phone with Laura, who is an extraordinary activist and writer. She's being held in incarceration and is brave enough to share her perspective and genius with us. Laura, thank you so much. I'm your host for today's episode of Think Outside the Cage. Happy Sunday, and we appreciate you listening. All my love to those inside and outside the walls. Big thanks to Gary Baca. If your automobile, truck, boat, motorcycle, RV, or aircraft is no longer reliable, it can still go a long way towards supporting the programs you rely on as a donation. To donate it to KPFK, call 877-KPFK-AUTO. That's 877-KPFK-AUTO. Welcome to Beneath the Surface. I'm Susie Wiseman. On Friday, January 12th, three organizations, the Rainbow Push Coalition, the Arab American Institute, and the Fellowship of Reconciliation organized an emergency summit for Gaza held in Chicago despite inclement weather, calling for a ceasefire, saving lives, and building peace. Thanks to Alan Minsky, who helped promote and attended the event, we can bring much of it to you today. The first panel, facilitated by the nation's John Nichols, featured Dr. James Zogby, Congressman Jonathan Jackson, and FOR's Ariel Gold. They asked themselves, what can be done to secure a permanent ceasefire? A second panel considered ceasefire on the local level. After resolutions for a ceasefire first passed in California and Michigan on October 24, 2023, other communities across the country organized to get city councils and state legislatures to pass resolutions on the local level to advance the ceasefire debate. We hear from Reverend Fahid Abu Akil. All this when our program returns in just a moment. And welcome back to Beneath the Surface. I'm Susie Wiseman. And very pleased to welcome Alan Minsky back with us. He is the executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America and a producer of this program. Alan helped promote the emergency summit for Gaza and Chicago that we're bringing to you today. And he was there for the event. Alan, welcome to the show. And can you tell us about the event and its highlights? Yeah, it was a very impressive event in that Reverend Jackson can really still draw together very important people from around the world to attend the conference. Of course, this is one thing that he did throughout his long career. He would intervene in hostage situations around the world. He would draw together uh, spokespeople from other countries, oftentimes when the U.S. government itself couldn't do that and coordinate uh, efforts for peace with organizations like the United Nations in a proactive way when the United States was balking at doing so. And he sort of pulled that off again here. We had, you know. How old is he now, by the way? Do you know? Well, he's, of course, been suffering from um, some health issues that are quite significant for many years now. He has trouble speaking, but he was he attended every session and he he clearly is following everything and really has a hand in directing things. But again, he pulled together like the, you know, the person who's the head of Human Rights Watch for Israel and Palestine. He had a very progressive rabbi from the Chicago area there. He had United Nations representatives, again, people who oversee UN policy in Israel and Palestine. Of course, they attended remotely. You had Mark Lamont Hill and Peter Beinart. They were in a session again, remotely. They, I think, might have been coming to Chicago, but the weather was too bad for them to travel. Uh, again, you had Chewy Garcia, you had Jonathan Jackson, two Congress people. You had uh, actually a, a member of the Illinois State Assembly who uh, actually received international headlines this past summer uh, when he's a Palestinian-American and when he was visiting his family back in the West Bank. Uh, vigilantes attacked the town wow. uh, very, very, very aggressively. And so he was there again. And and Nina Turner was there. Cornell West was there. Again, many people there, uh, all making very powerful cases. Uh, a lot of also people who are experts in terms of policy analysis. And there was a full day session that we're actually hearing no excerpts from. And I should mention that the very first session on the first day, Jim Zogby released a poll that was put together for this summit. Of course, the Zogby family and his brother is one of the great pollsters in the United States right. in recent decades. And it was called American Attitudes, Opinions on the Latest Outbreak of Violence in Palestine and Israel. 
And while it shows, on balance, the entirety of the American population still has stronger sympathies for Israel than Palestine. Across the younger you get uh, in the population, the more that swings the other way. And the trend has not been towards greater support for Israel. And then on every single issue other than that top line question, the population overall basically opposed the policy position of the United States towards the crisis in a way that was less favorable to Israel and more favorable to calling for a ceasefire, ending aid, putting conditions on aid and military aid to Israel. So in every way the poll showed, the population in the United States is rejecting the Biden administration's approach in favor of something that would be more equitable, more peaceful, including that they would be more apt to vote for politicians who are calling for a ceasefire. And we know only about one-eighth of Congress has called for a ceasefire. So that was very powerful to start. And again, the whole thing, of course, was inflected with a tremendous degree of of tragedy and, and the the terror of what everybody is witnessing. But in this regard, too, is a very beautiful and powerful event because, you know, with Reverend Jackson and him coming out of the Martin Luther King tradition of nonviolent civil disobedience and also with a deep sense of very sincere and loving religiosity was part of the, the whole event. And, and it was very great to be with Reverend Jackson, be with the Rainbow Push people on the south side of Chicago. And it was a very impactful event. And I think everybody who left there felt left their feeling that we have a very, very strong network of activists and intellectuals to build a case to transform U.S. policy towards Israel and Palestine. It's really interesting, too, because, of course, we're going to move quite quickly now to go into the panel. But what makes it, you know, since the time that this came about, we've seen now that uh, there are open divisions inside Israel among the military and the government. Eighty percent of Israelis now are very upset with Netanyahu's rule and the conduct of the war. We don't know what that means, but there's a split in the war leadership and it's now in the open, and it's gotten even worse since Netanyahu's made the declaration that there will be no Palestinian state despite the United States and everyone else pushing for a two-state solution. So calling for a ceasefire now and having this summit you know, couldn't be more timely. Is there anything else you'd like to say, Alan, about what else was discussed and some of the highlights were that we won't be able to bring today? Yeah, on the first day, there was a strong presence from the organization, if not now. And while Jewish Voice for Peace actually had a national retreat the same weekend, they were represented by somebody who's on their uh, rabbinical council. And so there was a lot of appreciation for the people who have been involved in activism. And in fact, of course, if not now in JVP, do practice the kind of nonviolent civil disobedience that, of course, was so central to the civil rights movement. And of course, it was also happening um, on Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. And that right. made, uh, have, have tremendous resonance. So it was a powerful event. And I think it was important for the people who were there to all be meeting together and really bolstered a sense that we're there. You know, we've gone through this so often with this issue. We now see the public turning away from the U.S. traditional U.S. policy approach to the region. And I don't think we're going to even with a Democratic administration that is vulnerable to defeat to a horrible Republican prospect. In the fall, I don't think anybody's going to waver on their position. And I think everybody left there with a strong sense that we mean to make them a case to the entire Democratic Party that they need to shift their policy. It'll be beneficial electorally if they shift their policy. And of course, in the background to that issue is that everybody has to stand up to the power and force of the Israel lobby, which is a real force and a negative force inside American politics. And that was something that was expressed, of course, across a number of the panels. And Alan Minsky, I want to thank you. You got a shout out from the panel for your role in promoting it and probably helping some of the organization of this emergency summit for Gaza that was held in Chicago. Thanks for joining us today, Alan, and letting us know all the good stuff that was there and bringing it to our attention right here. Thank you so much, Susie, and thank you for airing these great excerpts. Thank you. And now we're going to go to the Emergency Summit's first panel, What Can Be Done to Secure a Permanent Ceasefire, featuring Congressman Jonathan Jackson, Dr. James Zogby, and Ariel Gold, and it is facilitated by the nation's John Nichols. 
So we are joined today by a remarkable panel of people, many of whom you've heard a little bit of, but this moment we're going to focus in on Washington, D.C. and how to make things happen there. We have with us Congressman Jonathan Jackson, one of the first signers of the ceasefire resolution. Ariel Gold from the Fellowship of Reconciliation, who has been one of the key organizers of this conference. And the one guy you all know, Jim Zogby, James Zogby, AAI, the poll, everything that's been going on. So let's sit down and get started. We don't have a lot of time, so let's do this. James Zogby, in 1976, you testified before a panel on which Senator Joe Biden, a first-term senator, was considering issues of Israel and Palestine. Has he moved at all since 1976? It, it was remarkable when I reflected on it and went back and found the transcript of our, my testimony and his questioning that his brain got locked in, in in the 70s and never moved on this issue and on many others. And I read an article in Mother Jones just recently about how his one of his early mentors was Scoop Jackson, who one might say was the his office was the breeding place for the neoconservative movement. A lot of Democrats who were liberal on social issues but became Cold War hawks and very pro-Israel. Richard Pearl, Paul Wolfowitz, Doug Fife, a lot of these guys grew up in that environment. And Joe Biden, that was his mentor when he first got in the Senate. And I didn't make that connection until I read the article and then I went back and looked at the testimony and his reaction to it. And I saw that that's where he was back then and I've had conversations with him since and he hasn't moved a bit. The, you say the question is how do we move Congress? We want to move Congress because we want to move Joe Biden. But at the heart of it, the more energy there is in Congress, the more likely it is that we have an impact on the White House because this is in fact politics, whether we like it or not. So let me ask you one more thing on Biden before we move to some of these congressional issues and, and, and the activism. And that is Joe Biden is perhaps locked in a mindset of the past. He has people around him, however, and I'm wondering, it's clear aides in the White House, young aides in the White House have signed letters, people at the State Department have signed letters. Is the challenge that the president is not listening to anyone but a small circle, or, or what do you think is going on there? I think the dynamic works the other way. It's not that he's not listening, it's that they're not asking. They, uh, the, the classic Washington syndrome or m mindset is you don't question the boss because you lose access if you do. So they, said they go along, get along to go along, whatever the expression is, because they don't want to lose their parking place, they don't want to lose their seat at the lunch table, they don't want to lose their opportunity to meet in the Oval Office. So they, yes boss, yes boss, whatever you say boss. I think that's more the dynamic. But at the end of the day, Joe Biden is also a political creature. And when you think back to 2020, and the issues that he picked up from Bernie Sanders because he knew he needed that wing and he had to adopt that agenda, he did. The question is, move enough members of Congress, show him as we showed in our poll where public opinion is on this issue and that his entire re-election and legacy will be shaped by losing an election based on Gaza, which could very well be the case. I think we could see movement. One more thing I'm going to ask you before I turn to the congressman here, and, and that is, um, we started by mentioning the president, right? Because this is a panel discussion about D.C. and about politics. But we should also kind of have that bigger global picture. In your view, as somebody who's dealt with the Middle East for a very, very long time, is there any chance that Benjamin Netanyahu and Israel moves unless President Biden and the U.S. moves? No, uh, there is not. And um, I think we've seen that actually was a very strong pro-Israel thought leader here in the U.S. who wrote a piece in Orbis magazine back in the 90s about how the only way you move Israel is through pressure from America. And he went back to Gerald Ford, he went to Ronald Reagan, he went to Jimmy Carter, he went to all the presidents who used pressure. Even Ronald Reagan, 1982, after Begin was assaulting Lebanon 
at one point called him on the phone and said, people are watching this, it is a Holocaust, stop. And then he suspended F-16s, he suspended cluster bombs, and guess what, Begin stopped. I mean, I, I never thought I'd be at the point where I'd say a Democratic president needed to learn a lesson from Ronald Reagan, but that was the situation. And the fact is, is that he has been an enabler, whereas some other presidents have used even limited pressure. Bill Clinton said, I'll never publicly pressure the Israelis, but he used the most subtle and careful ways of applying pressure. Like he was in LA, his plane right next to Netanyahu's on the, on the, on the runway, and Netanyahu sent a message over that he wanted to talk to him, and Clinton said, I have no time and wouldn't talk to him. And meanwhile, I got a haircut and then flew back to Washington, held a dinner for Shimon Perez, giving him something that had never existed before, the Yitzhak Rabin Peace Award, and invited 75 Arab and 75 Jewish leaders and spoke glowingly about Perez, who, oh, by the way, was running an election against Netanyahu at the time. And Netanyahu got the message. You don't screw with the President of the United States. And so the point is, is that the message he's getting from Joe Biden is, I can screw them all I want, he's not going to do anything. And so if you send the message with pressure, Israel gets nervous. And they have no reason to get nervous right now because there's no pressure. Last thing on that before I shift, I, I know I said that was the last, but one more little element here. Um, people need to remember that George H.W. Bush and James Baker, another set of Republicans, moved a lot of ground on this issue uh, by talking about loan guarantees. Completely, there would not have been a Madrid peace conference had Jim Baker not applied that kind of pressure. And granted, I mean, I, my, my big gripe with, with Jim Baker was the pressure was brilliant, but the goal he set was too limited. The goal he set was to just get him at the table. The goal should have been to get him to complete a deal. When you, when you spend all your energy, all your political capital, all your weapons on simply getting them to the table, you then don't have anything left for when it comes time to use it for the big stuff. But frankly, if we threatened sanctions, if we threatened cut in aid, if we threatened what we could threaten, right, you would see movement in Israel. Here, let me just make one final point and then I'll stop. The, the issue for me is not only do we enable Israel and allow them to do horrible things against Palestinians, we have killed the peace movement in Israel that was vibrant back in the, in the, in the 90s. Because they have given up because America has not had their back. They've not had their back. And so if you pressure Israel, you not only get them to move, but you also empower the Israeli people to challenge their own government, not on the, the who gets to pray at the wall, not who gets to determine marriage laws, but on who gets to determine whether or not they will live in a constant state of war and apartheid against Palestinians. That would make a difference. It would empower peace in Israel and it would also send a message to Palestinians that maybe America could have our back. But right now, Palestinians feel America is no hope and Israelis feel America's got no clout. And so you got the spoiled child going after the abused child and you get what you get, which is genocide. James Sogby. Congressman Jackson, you grew up with these issues. Your father, in 1979, uh, started talking about some of these issues, and by the time 84 campaign around, came around, he was talking about it more, um, and 88 actually forced the convention dialogue on, on Israel-Palestine. So you came to Congress with a knowledge of this. Not all of your fellow members are of the same experience and necessarily have seen the politics of it with the wholeness that you have. I was struck that in the immediate aftermath of the horrific Hamas attack on October 7th, that you were one of the very first people to speak up and to say the attack was horrific, but we have to make sure that the steps that are taken forward are not in themselves horrific. Obviously, not all members have done that. Members are now starting to evolve. We hear that there's about 57 to 60 members who have called for ceasefire in some way or another. That's in the House. There are four senators. Tell me about your own kind of experience of this and also how you think it might be possible to move more members of the House on the theory that obviously if they move, that may move the White House as well. 
Well, thank you so much. Um, I'd like to affiliate myself with everything that Uncle Jim Zogby has said, spot on. I hadn't heard the spoiled child and the abused child analogy, but uh, very appropriate. Um, here we are. So in 1979, I was in seventh grade. I wasn't watching the news that much, probably more football and basketball at the time, but was able to vote in 1984 for the first time when my father was running. 1983, I believe, when he went to Damascus, Syria, to meet with President Hafez Assad, who the United States was not talking to. Uh, at that time, Secretary of Defense uh, Donald Rumsfeld had gone back and forth to Syria and was never asked about a downed fighter pilot and Captain Lieutenant Robert Goodman. My father asked to speak with the uh, ambassador to Syria, asked to uh, meet with the president, Hafez Assad, accommodated us. We went over there with an ecumenical group, ministers, Baptists, rabbis, and imams, people from different faiths to seek a meeting, A, with the ecumenical council, and B, with the president. Religion moves. Huh? Many of them from Chicago, right? People yep. that the reverend had worked with here on the ground. So you bring in domestic activism flying over to do global things. And so it's important to understand religion has a place. If you want to move their government, you have to talk to their religious leaders. You, all the power is not vested in their government to government. There is a role for the activists here and the people that are of the faith community to play a role in this peace process. It does matter in many other parts of the world. So without the portfolio of the United States government, without a senior chairman of a committee, without a ranking member, without portfolio of the United States government, just an African-American minister with other people of the faith community was able to go over and secure the release of Lieutenant Robert Goodman that the people in our own government had never asked to be released. That's one. Second part, when the Gulf Wars were about to begin, if you will, the war with Iraq, and uh, Senator, I mean, that time, Secretary of State Colin Powell, some would say he was misled, some would say that um, uh, he finally testified. Unfortunately, I'd have to say, even in his death, that Secretary of State Colin Powell lied. If people give you the bad information and you're willing to put your credibility on the line and it leads to hundreds of thousands of people getting killed, that is a lie. And I'm only saying that on the principle of the position he was in. If everyone around you told you that, and you ended up giving it, and it led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. Six trillion dollars the United States has subsequently put into Iraq. Two trillion we have since put into Afghanistan. We went to Iraq, same formula, went to meet with the ecumenical peace council, the ecumenical group, then went to meet with President Saddam Hussein, went behind the green wall, went to the palace. My father asked about the release of 400 persons then that were human shields to ask them to be released in order to avert the war that was imminent because they said they were stealing oil. There's a symmetry and there's a, a continuity on how time is repeating itself again. And then ultimately they hung Saddam Hussein, killed him, killed his children, and uh, Iraq became destabilized. Iranian influence has now since grown over the mountain because of the destabilization and a million people killed. In conclusion, I have seen the peace process work, and I knew it wasn't going to be weaponizing people that had anger and vengeance and revenge in their heart. And on that day of October 7th, there were 1,127, I believe, Jewish brothers and sisters that had been horrifically killed. There had been over 1,400 brothers and sisters of Palestinian descent that were killed, if I'm not wrong, on October 7th. And knowing this being in the hands of Mr. Netanyahu, that he would absolutely go beyond any conventional understanding of traditional warfare. And now, 90 days later, we're looking at closer to 30,000 people having been killed, over 100,000 people crippled in Maine, and the United States is not able to rein him in. In these events of war, you have to act on caution. 
Let more peace and more conversation lead. Don't make decisions when you're angry. Don't make promises when you're happy and don't write letters when you're angry. I've learned about that from being in office. And it was an easy decision. Cease fire now so that people can be reconciled and get back to the table. When you know that 50% of the population in Gaza is under the age of 18, when you realize that over 50% are women, over 50% are children, essentially, and the population is women and children, you can't kill the person that's being held hostage, if you will, by Hamas, saying you're going after the hostage taker. It made no sense on the face. I I wanted to see Israeli and Palestinian children have a future together, not a future generation of orphaned Palestinian children wanting to seek revenge after Netanyahu's continued assault on the Gaza Strip. So it was a straightforward solution for me uh, to seek peace. It wasn't popular then, but I didn't want it to be popular. I wanted to be morally correct. I wanted my children to look me in the eye and say, Dad, job well done. I wanted my father to look me in the eye and say, job well done. I wanted to come back to Chicago to my constituents and having represented you in the manner that you found to be most suitable and honest with the most integrity for you too. That's my campaign plug as well. <laughs> Let me ask you, you talk to your colleagues. In fact, it's funny, before you went to Congress, you and I talked a little bit, and one of the things you said was, I'm going to go and talk to Republicans. I'm going to go across that aisle, I'm going to find people I disagree with, and I'm going to start my conversations with them because I want to build relationships, and I know you've done a lot of that. As you talk to your colleagues now, not to the ones who've signed on to ceasefire, but to the ones who might sign on, or who you would hope would, where does it stand today? Are there more members who are looking at this? And, and what might move them to sign on for a ceasefire? You know, I would say, in fairness to some of my colleagues, I've had the incredible fortune, if you will, of growing up under Mr. Jim Zogby and calling him Uncle Jim. This goes back to the 70s and when Arab Americans weren't even included in the United States Census. The first Arab American was recorded in the United States Census in the year 2000. So if you want to look at American history, there are no Arab Americans even recorded here until technically you have the United States Census to make it a classification. So you've always been here and have not been recognized. Uh, many of my colleagues, we can come, and that's the beauty of the institution. You could have been an insurance salesman, you could have worked in a bar, you could have been a university professor, you could have been a wealthy person. We all have to get on the ballot the same way, the same time. It's the only branch of government where you cannot be appointed is into the House of Representatives. And I've had the opportunity to grow up here at Rainbow Push under the leadership of my father, Reverend Jackson, and meet these heads of states before I got there. I've already met the popes before. I've already met kings before. I've already met heads of states before. I've already seen a peace process work before. So in some ways, the ranking member, Gregory Meeks of Foreign Affairs, sometimes he looks at me and smiles and shakes his head and says, you're not a freshman. <laughs> and so in many ways, I've been around uh, the other side, the activist community. And so now being on the inside, some of the votes you won't necessarily understand because you have to go deep into all of the language. And I say you won't understand just because of the time we have to commit. But some of these are gotcha votes where people are trying to frame you to look anti-Semitic because there was one word in the legislation that you disagreed with, so you voted against it. We weren't anti-Semitic or anti-Israel. We were just anti-Benjamin Netanyahu and his, uh, and his tactics on what he's doing. So there are many good people in Israel that want to see it stop. I wanted the first side on the side of peace and reconciliation. I wanted to side thinking about the future of Palestinian and Israeli children living together long after I'm gone, long after this room is empty, not creating a future generation of enemies with hostilities and animosity. And unfortunately, Mr. Netanyahu on this destructive path is seeking, uh, is creating another generation 
and he won't be able to build a wall big enough. He won't be able to have a moat wide enough. He won't be able to have be armed enough to stop all the anger that is now being created. So we ask for peace and ceasefire and reconciliation so there can be a future generation that can study war no more in that area. And I have to say a very special thank you, if you will, to the Qatari government. The, the Qatari government is leading the peace process. Now what's wrong with that picture? That's a great thing that they have emerged this nation and they're leading the peace process. Why isn't the United States leading the peace process? That's what I want to see happen going forward immediately. Congressman Jonathan Jackson. So, Ariel Gold, you're an activist. I mean, that's, that's just the truth of it. You happen to head an organization for, which has been around since 1915, doing incredible work on behalf of peace and justice, but you are an activist. So you have just heard one of the smartest people about the Middle East that you know, and somebody who's talked to the president and been around doing this for decades, Jim Zogby, say, mm, I don't know if the guy's gonna move very easily. You've just heard a, a congressman who's had an awful lot of experience saying, you know, look, we know what we should do, but, but boy, you know, it's, it's hard to get them there, right? You got, you got 57, but you don't have 218. What needs to happen now? What do people need to do to move Washington? I know our, our passion and our, our, our pain as regards what's happening in the Middle East. We need to talk about it. We need to, you know, process all that. But as, from an activist standpoint, what has to happen? Sure. Well, first of all, I want to say that we've been doing, activists have been doing an incredible job since this started, have been filling the streets, have been filling the jails, and that's what we do as activists. And it's not just about ramping it up, but it's also about how we can own and refine the message. And one of the things that... Um, let's say the right or the, the pro-war folks are sometimes good at is uh, dividing us. And they have, they've been attempting to own the, the faith community at large. Um, whether, and right after October 7th, the day after and all through the month of October, uh, evangelical pro-Christian movements, Christian United for Israel, they raised millions and they advocated on behalf of Israel for that and they they attempted in many ways owned that narrative and we as people of faith this is actually our narrative because we know that the teachings of all of our faiths are for peace and justice and to suggest that supporting a war would be what God would want is in a word, perverse. <laughs> so what does that look like for us to do? And, you know, I've been watching in a lot of ways how the right has, has attempted to own various parts of this issue um, from the religious angle saying, you know, that God, the land of Israel was promised to the Jews or the evangelicals, you know, need this war to take place. Or the idea that when we go out in the streets and when... Um, rabbis for ceasefire and uh, Jews for ceasefire, Jewish Voice for Peace, if not now, some of our own Jewish organizations then label that as pro-Hamas, label that as not caring about the Israeli women who were brutally raped on October 7th, label that as one-sided um, against the Jewish people. And that's just not true. I label that as well. We have this division about who is for release of the hostages and that either you want a ceasefire or you want the hostages released. And yet we know that the only time the people taken hostage on October 7th were released was when there was a halt in the bombings and the war. And so these are actually our allies. And I agree with Representative Jackson that faith has a 
voice. It has a voice in having an influence, and it has a voice in Congress. And we need to be working not just in the streets, but in the, our houses of worship. And that work is being done. There's a, a full-page ad in Atlanta newspaper today of black faith leaders for ceasefire. And, of course, we see this with rabbis for ceasefire who are continuously in handcuffs. Um, and we need to build this up. And there's, there's great organizations in the evangelical community working on this. And so it's up to us to, to reclaim the name of God as one of justice and peace and to take advantage of, of moments that occur, which we saw uh, during Christmas when uh, Reverend Munther in Bethlehem placed baby Jesus amid the, rough, the rubble, and it went viral. So how do we take that moment as people of faith and lift that up um, and be a prophetic voice for, for the reality, which is that, you know, for, for people of the Abrahamic faith, these are the times that define us, right? This is, this is it, and our liberation is linked with each other, and so we have to unite in that same way. Let me follow up on, on one aspect of that, and that is, if I'm hearing you right, what you are saying is that you may not be able to counter all of the political influence, but members of Congress actually represent districts. Right? And there are six, seven hundred thousand people living in, maybe eight hundred thousand living in a district. And an awful lot of those are people of faith. And so at the, at the end of the day, one of the most effective ways to build out a constituency at the, in the district of each individual member of Congress is to take that time and build out those faith coalitions. It's not the only answer. There are many, many other things that have to be done. But building out Jewish, Muslim, Christian, uh, Hindu, uh, non-believers who may still have some sympathy uh, into a message. That's powerful, isn't it? That is something, and, and maybe hopeful as well, because we've seen it uh, around the country. I, I come from Wisconsin, and Senator Tammy Baldwin was, you know, uh, had not taken a strong stand. And then Mennonite action, and the Mennonites are not the biggest religion in America, uh, but Mennonite Action uh, had a protest at her office, and the next, year, next day she made a very powerful statement on concern about the violence in Gaza. And so it seems like this can actually move people. Absolutely, this can move people. And houses of worship have a lot of influence in districts. And we've seen houses of worship move communities on issues of racial justice, on LGBTQ plus rights. And we need to be clear as we stand against Christian nationalism here and Hindu nationalism in India and Jewish supremacy in Israel that, that our faiths know for certain that killing children children is not what we are called to do. And we need to put that loud and clear and front and center and be houses of worship, organize as houses of worship for ceasefire, houses of worship against white supremacy. These are all things that, that are linked together. And, you know, sometimes we think of prayer as, as very separate. And, uh, so Rabbi Joshua Heschel, after he marched with, with Dr. King from uh, Selma to Montgomery, he said that, uh, he said, somebody had asked him, well, did you have time to pray? And he said, I felt like my legs were praying. And we have to realize that our prayers are manifested through actions. And so, you know, as, as today is the holy day of Shabbat, it is this, it is being here or it is being out in the streets, that is um, how we pray right now. So we are told that we probably should around the dinner table mention religion and politics. But it sounds, Ariel Gold, like you were telling us that we ought to start with religion and politics. Ariel Gold. <laughs> Jim Zogby, you had something you wanted to add yeah, here. Two things, one on this session and one on something I've been thinking about and didn't mention before. On this session, we have elections in November. We have 
a number of members who are fantastic colleagues of yours who are being threatened because they have spoken out on these issues. They're being challenged. We cannot afford to lose a single one of them. If you want to, if you want to make change in Congress, we've got to show other members of Congress that they can speak out and face the, her, the huge amounts of money and still win elections. We need Jamal Bowman and Summer Lee and the rest of them, Rashida and Ilhan and Corey. We need them in Congress. We have to defend them. That's number one. Number two, this is a message for all of us. If you listen to the speeches today and yesterday of the people we really respect, our message has got to be inclusive. It cannot be angry. It cannot be judged. If, if we say, if you're not with us, you're the enemy, and you are this and you're that, we're turning people. Our message has to be inviting to people. It has to bring them as Dr. King, as Reverend Jackson did. I was thinking, there are people who compare Jesse Jackson to other people. He was, there, there has not been somebody running for president yet, including now, and I mean this in all seriousness, and I respect all of them who've done it, who has had the kind of message that Reverend Jackson did. He lifted us to a higher plane. He took the message of Dr. King, made it a political message, and brought people together around. You could oppose him, but not oppose his message. As he said, I could be an imperfect messenger, but my message is perfect. Stay with me. God's not done with me yet. That is so important. So temper your language. Don't turn people off. My mom used to say, think about what other people are hearing when you talk. If they see you as angry and threatening and not inviting, they're not going to be with us. That's it. James Sogby. We got about a minute left uh, because we are, we're really trying to stick to a schedule today. I'm going to let Jim's words be uh, his brilliant conclusion, as always. Turn to Ariel. If there's one thing that people can do, not, you've talked about a lot of big stuff. If there's one thing people can do coming out of this room today and watching out around the country, what is it? So whether that's in your city council to pass a resolution for ceasefire, whether that's in your church, your mosque, or your synagogue to get your house of worship to come out for ceasefire, whether that's in your community center, organize. Ariel Gold. Congressman, um, you're going back to Washington. And I know on Tuesday over in the Senate, Bernie Sanders is going to try and raise some of the funding issues with the resolution there. Um, uh, what are you going to do in Washington this week to try and move this issue? You've just been with all these incredible people. You bring your own knowledge of your experience, but you also bring the passion that you've had in this room. What are you going to take back to Washington? If I can have this privilege to make one comment. First, we need to thank Senator Dick Durbin. He's the first United States Senator to sign on for ceasefire. There are 435 of us in the Congress, but there's 100 in the Senate, and our own Illinois Senator Dick Durbin was the first U.S. Senator, and then three others quickly followed behind him. So uh, congratulations. Thank you for that leadership, Dick Durbin. Uh, the second part, on the way of background, on October 7th of 2023, the United States did not have an ambassador sworn in from the United States to Israel or an ambassador sworn in from the United States to Egypt. Not only was the guard down, the defense, our diplomacy was down, and there has never been a plan organized by Netanyahu on the development of Gaza. He's had no long-term interest in seeing that survive. And then during that period of time in September, Mr. Netanyahu had tens of thousands of people protesting him in the streets. So, brothers and sisters, we have a lot of people in Israel that agree with us. We want to put the hostages, the captive and the captors on the same plate. Return each other's citizens. Let the hostages be free. Let those that are arrested without charges be free. Return people's families to one another. 
I'm going to craft another letter. I'm going to work with uh, Mr. Jim Zogby to get uh, some better language. I follow his leadership, and I'll hear from my constituents and friends that are here in the community on further actions that they want me to take. I'm their representative, and I'll do as they ask. Congressman Jonathan Jackson. Quick shout out to the brilliant organizer, Alan Minsky from uh, Progressive Democrats of America who's out there and who, uh, who I suspect is, is ready to take that letter, not just around Washington, but take it out to districts across this country. I know that Ariel will do the same. And brothers and sisters, thank you so much for being there. You bring the strength to a panel like this. Join me in a huge round of applause for yourselves and also for James Zogby, for Ariel Gold, and for Congressman Jonathan Jackson. Thank you. And we're now going to go to the second panel that considered a ceasefire on the local level after resolutions for a ceasefire First passed in California and Michigan on October 24th, 2023, there were other communities across the country who organized to get city councils and state legislatures to pass resolutions on the local level to advance the ceasefire debate. Ariel Gold is going to moderate this, and we're going to go to it now. October 7th. Uh... Jewish Voice for Peace, and if not now, and Jews for Racial and Economic Justice have seen a huge influx of people joining, and joining the organizations in particular. And I wonder if you could talk about how, especially on a local level, you are integrating so many new people, and how you are doing so in a way that both addresses the urgency of now, but also builds for the long run such that the arc, so that you're helping bend the arc of history towards justice. We've been blessed um, in many ways with a, that influx, many of whom are this next generation of activists who have been willing to come join graybeards like myself in really a quest for peace and justice. We're working at several levels. One, finding the way to move people into action quickly. And JVP, if not now, and its allies in Chicago have been part of a very multifaceted organizing action effort that have ranged from very traditional direct action, nonviolent, non-illegal, through the closing down of bridges, streets, taking over of um, the major train station in Chicago, all designed to take the attention of Chicago's community and say, ceasefire now. One day longer, too long. We've also been organizing very heavily to move people into action who want to do other things. And so we're now focused on supporting some very brave city council members who have coming up in two weeks, a little less than that, on the 24th, the ability to vote on a ceasefire resolution that will make Chicago the largest city in the United States to aggressively come out and say ceasefire now one, not one day more. In the back of that, in the back of all of that action, has been really very basic organizing principles. A number of us have been spending, and you could talk to my wife about this, more time than we would have counted on in one-on-one -on -one conversations. And so I'm on the phone, my colleagues are on the phone or on Zoom or in coffee shops multiple times a day, multiple times a week, taking the time to learn who people are and what motivates them and where they want to connect and finding out the ways that folks who are technological whizzes can help us increase our media presence, finding ways people who want to write can do that, finding out people who want to learn more about the issues, 
how we help them do that. This is very basic um, blocking, tackling, organizing, and it does, it, that's not changed. We still need to do it. We're still doing it. And I guess it's unfortunate that the tragedy of October 7th and what has followed has moved people, but it's also fortunate. They're now in the game in a way they were not before. Thank you. Reverend Nabulakal. So I've heard you talk about uh, when you were raised in, in 1948 Palestine, uh, your teacher telling you for the first time about uh, Dr. King being in jail on that particular day and what that was about and why he was in jail and the, the struggle for civil rights and black liberation here in the US and how that was transformative for you in terms of your faith. And you know, then you came to, to the US in the, in the 1960s and since then, you've been a part of more initiatives and projects that I can name and in the Presbyterian Church have raised up the the issue of Palestinian rights way before people wanted to allow it to be uttered. What what was that like back in, in those days? Um, I, I imagine one of the own, very few if not only um, Palestinian American I like to share my personal story because I'm the only one that can share with you the first Nakba of 1948. My parents are Palestinian, Christian, Arab farmers. And uh, the only thing I remember about the 1948 Nakba is basically going with my father five sisters and two brothers leaving home. And as a four-year-old kid, you look for who? For mother. So I can, every time I see the children in Gaza, I see myself running around dad, and suddenly I looked, and uh, my mother was waving her hand. So we went up to the mountain uh, to the east to a Druze village called Yirka. And we were put in a makeshift uh, Palestinian refugee camp. It's just like scouts. And uh, after three months, we came back. And my mother was alive and uh, basically always hunted me. So as a teenager, I wanted to ask my mother why you did not come with us. And I discovered, she said to dad, you take the children you can protect them. I'm going to stay here. This is our home. This is our land. This is our church. They need to kill me at home. And uh, so every time I think about my mother, I want to salute the Palestinian women, uh, the Palestinian sisters, and the backbone of the Palestinian sumud or steadfastness are the women, okay? And uh, we always, like in America, chauvinistic, the man. Eh? Well, without the women, nothing can will happen. And uh, as I think about that experience, right now we are really experiencing the second Nakba. Even though the Nakba was continuous, look, look what happened. From 1948 to 66, I couldn't leave my village. I needed to go to the Israeli military governor and get a permit to go to Akka, only five miles. And if I'm found in Akka without a permit, I go to court. And if I don't have money, I go to prison, okay? So I experienced the Israeli appetite system. Even though I'm a citizen, in the mind of the policymakers, I'm an occupant and they control my movement. So basically they created immediately 65 laws to control our lives as Palestinian citizen of the state of Israel. So they control our education, our movement, everything. So everything they learned on us from 48 to 66, after 1970, 67, they start to practice on Gaza, 
the West Bank. And of course, in, 19, uh, in 2017, they created a nation state law. That means the law says this land of Palestine belongs only uh, to the Jewish people. So I just want to say one more thing. The, 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 as I think about my parents, the church that I grew in was an Orthodox Christian church. And the building is about 800 years old. And uh, so I never forget, since this is the Martin Luther King uh, weekend, uh, Mrs. King invited me to do a prayer in January 2002. And the program said, Reverend Fahid Abu Aqil. Presbyterian Minutes at First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. And I began to pray. God Almighty, God of nonviolence, I come to you in prayer in the name of Jesus, the Holy One that Martin Luther King served. And while I'm praying, the smartest public radio, Mr. Wolf in the balcony in that small Ebenezer Baptist Church introduced me to the nation as a Muslim clergyman. Huh? That journalist had three journalistic evidences, reverend, Presbyterian, and praying in the name of Jesus. No Muslim, no Jew can do that, only the Christian. With all of that went by the wayside. My last name is Abu Aqil. Abu Aqil is Arabic, Arabic is a Muslim. God bless America. So he introduced me as a Muslim Imam. So anytime we think about Israel, we think about Jews. Anytime we think about uh, Arabs, we think about a Muslim. And good old Americans think Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and he grew in Texas, Nazareth. <laughs> Thank you. Hello. It's been an extraordinary two days. Um, and I really thank you all for your staying through it. Of those who participated and spoke uh, for what they said, um, the organizations who sponsored it, and those who did incredible work making it happen. Um, it has been a, a remarkable two days, but Reverend Haynes called me this morning to say, we're not done yet. Uh, this is the first step. We're going to get together again in a week uh, and talk about both a, an assessment of what we've done, but also the next steps that we move forward. We are not done with Congress. We're not done with challenging threats to free speech. Uh, we're not done moving this issue forward. There are lives at stake. It should not have taken this long. It still is going to take longer and every day more dead, every day more anger, every day more hurt and pain. And it should not have taken this long. But we're on the path right now and we're not, we're not getting off. And, and so when I said earlier this morning about tempering speech, about thinking about what you say and being inclusive and welcoming people, bringing people to you, not rejecting them and forcing them away from you, I meant that. I meant that. That's what was so, you listen to a speech by Martin Luther King today and you're drawn in. You listen to Reverend Jackson in 84 and 88 and other speeches he gave, you're drawn to him. I'll never forget the Democratic Convention in 84 standing behind you as you gave that acceptance speech and looking at the faces of the people, folks who would not have supported you in the world, but standing and cheering because you spoke to their hearts and you won them over. We have to win people over. That's so important. So I, I thank you all for being here and we will be back again until this is done. And after ceasefire, we're not done. But first we get the ceasefire, then we get aid fixed, then we get the military assistance fixed, then we protect free speech, then we protect the rights of Americans to protest in any form on, on these issues, and then we have more to do because peace is not yet. Thank you. And that's our show for today. I'd like to thank Alan Minsky for bringing us the emergency summit for a ceasefire. Thanks also to executive producer Robert Brenner, to producer, director, engineer Melissa Figueroa, 
editor Juliana Gota, and Gary Baca in Master Control. You can listen to this and other archive shows as well as subscribe to the podcast at kpfk.org. Click Audio Archives and scroll down to Beneath the Surface with Susie Wiseman. More information on programs and guests are on our Facebook page. That's Beneath the Surface with Susie Wiseman. And you've been listening to Beneath the Surface on KPFK, Pacifica Radio for all of Southern California and beyond, streaming live and archived at kpfk.org. Thanks for listening and stay tuned. And please pledge your support with a generous gift and become a listener sponsor of KPFK and this show, Beneath the Surface. I'm Susie Wiseman. Thank you, Susie Wiseman. This is KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 93.7 San Diego County, and 99.5 Ridgecrest and China Lake. That's Peaches and Herb, and as a gift to you, a free gift, these are free tickets, we're offering tickets to Peaches and Herb. We'll just put you on the list. We thank you for listening to KPFA. This is our gratitude, and sometimes we give away tickets just for the heck of it. So Peaches and Herb performing tonight at the Saban Theater on Wilshire Boulevard.